We'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. To continue our airplane theme, you're, you're going to feel, as we start walking through this, uh, you're going to feel a very long runway. So it's going to feel like it's going to take us a, a little bit of time to get off the ground. Um, don't panic. We'll, we'll get up in the air, and then whenever we do, we'll, we'll fly pretty, pretty quickly. But it's very important to set the context for the book of Revelation, because chapter 1 reveals some very pertinent information that, that uh, allows us to understand the, the rest of the, of the book. And every time I think about Revelation, I think about the fact that many people are, are preoccupied with, with knowing things ahead of time. Um, we watch the, the news to get the weather forecast in order to, to plan uh, events. Um, if you have looked at the weather forecast this week, if you have not, I should say don't. It's depressing. Um, and yet then we complain all the time whenever the, whenever the weather forecaster gets it, gets it wrong. Um, we, we want the inside scoop on companies. Uh, my father sends uh, uh, me... Every year for Christmas, he gets me a subscription uh, to um, Kiplinger, or, which is like a money magazine. I don't know why he does that being a pastor, but he does. I guess it's from uh, history, and it, 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 it gives you the inside scoop on, on companies and, and mutual funds so, so you can make good purchasing decisions. Uh, you turn on the news and people are obsessed with the polls to try to figure out what's going to happen ahead of, of times. What are the trends in political races? Books have been written on predicting the trends of the, of the future. People are interested in the future, but sadly, most of them look in the wrong place, don't they? There's only one who knows the future, and that one has declared the future ahead of time, and that is God Almighty, the the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us that even in the, even in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind. Transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And watch this. Declaring the end from the beginning. From the ancient times, the things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. And we have one source that God has provided for us that, that declares the end from the, from the beginning, and that is the, that's the Bible. And specifically, the book of Revelation tells us what is, what's coming in the, in the future. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it's the introduction to the book, and it, it gives us some very pertinent information. Now, the Bible reveals all of God's redemptive plan, but the, but the book of Revelation is the, is the final chapter, if you, if you will. It unveils the history of the world, the return of Christ, the setting up of His earthly kingdom, and then the eternal kingdom that's, that's coming, in the, coming in the heavens. And if you, if you look at, at Revelation in your, in your Bible, you can tell that there's a lot on this side that's already taken place, and there's just a wee little bit that's yet to take place. And that is, that's, a, that's a good thing for us. It's not a very good thing for the world, as we'll see tonight, or for unbelievers. Because what's contained in this, in this wee little bit that is yet to take place is horrifying. It takes your breath away. In fact, Revelation has a number of pauses because it, it would just be too much for anybody to, to, to take in as you, as you just walk through the, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and the, the wrath that, that, is, that is to come. And, and in reality, Revelation is not really the, the ending but the beginning of what awaits every human, human being. This earth, this world is, is not our home. Aren't you glad of that? I'm very glad of that. And so John sets the platform for what, what will unfold, and, and he begins with, this, with the title 
What's going to be revealed in verse 1? The, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the title of the, of the book. He tells us how, how it's revealed. There's the transmission in verse, verse 2. Who testified by the word of God to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to, to all that, that he saw. And then there's the promised blessing in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the, for the time is near. There's a revealing title, there's a reliable transmission, and then there's the, the promised benefit. What's going to be revealed, how it's going to be revealed, and why we should... Why we should study Revelation. And the very first verse tells us about its contents, the revelation or the unveiling, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a foretelling and it's, a, it's an unveiling. It's an apocalypse and it's a, a revelation and it's a, it's a prophecy. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's the apocalypsis, it's the 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 revealing, and it's concerning things which must soon take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. So it's, it's about the future. It's an unveiling about the, about the future. And the word revelation is where that apocalypse, the, the, what we say apocalypse, is where that word comes from, the Greek apocalypsis. And it's a disclosure of the unseen. It's used 18 times. In the, in the book. Revelation unveils, makes visible the unseen, the things that, that are going on in history. I mean, this was written to the church. It was written to the church in the time of John's day, and it's still viable for, for us today. But there were Christians living when this, when this book was, was written, and it was, to, it was to help them see what was taking place in their world right then, and help them to see what was going to take place so they could properly respond. It shows what's really happening in the world so that the church can see it. We need to interpret the things that are going on in the world through the Word of God. We should let what's going on in the world interpret God or, or His Word, right? Revelation is not an expert opinion. It's a divine disclosure. It's what is taking place and what, what will take place, and that's the prophecy part. Look at verse 3. So there's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, it says it's also a prophecy. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the, of the, of the prophecy. It's a foretelling. And prophecy simply means that. It's a foretelling of, of future events. Now, now, a lot of people, whenever they think of prophecy, they, they think of a, of a psychic or, or maybe a sophisticated predictor like Nostradamus. You can't turn on the History Channel or National Geographic and they're running some, some, something for a wow factor. You know, some guy, however long ago, wrote something in, you know, fortune cookie uh, level of detail. And, and it seems like it took place, and, and, and they, make, they make TV shows about that. Those are people who claim to be able to see into the future. And they often speak in riddles, shrouded assertions of what may happen. Like I said, it's like a fortune cookie. If you've ever read one, it's like, you will meet a, tar, a tall, dark stranger today. And then the rest of the day, you're looking for somebody tall with, with, with dark hair, and some people actually fall for that. If you look hard enough, you'll eventually find what you're looking for. That's not what God means whenever He says prophecy here. The words of the prophecy. Prophecy is what must take place, what will take place, and what is accurately declared beforehand. When God says prophecy, it's what must take place. It's not a maybe so. It must take place. God has declared it. He's ordained it. It's what will take place because God can fulfill exactly what, what he promised. And, and it's declared beforehand. That's the, that's the foretelling part, the, the prophetic part. It's a precise foretelling of exactly what will come to pass. It's a divine look into the future. And while it may be described in visions and symbols, there's, 
there's, there's no grading on a curve with, with, with God. Biblical prophecy is not like 60% chance of rain. <laughs> it's not the best three out of five predictions. Wow, God's book is a whole lot better than everybody else. It's, God was pretty close, so we should pay attention. It's, God is foretelling what exactly will take place. He's planned the universe. And so it will take place because he controls the future and he knows all things. So when you think of Revelation, you should think of two things. You should think of an unveiling and a foretelling. It shows the unseen and proclaims the approaching destiny of all mankind. And it's not the future. Are you listening? It's your future. Now, you're not going to go through the tribulation if you're saved, if you're part of the church. But Revelation talks about your future. It's not just the future. It's, it's your future. And that's why you should pay attention to it. It might be just a good moment to, to remind you that if God can see the, the unseen future, He can surely also see the unseen parts of, of your life. I mean, if God can see the unseen world, don't you think He knows what no one else sees? The hidden sin, the, the hurting heart, if He can foretell the future and ensure it comes to pass? Isn't He powerful enough to change your future through Christ? He sure can. And if He cares enough to reveal about it beforehand, do you think He cares for you? You better believe that He does. And there's some blessing before we ever even get into the book of Revelation. It's a dependable message. And it's so we can, we can prepare. Notice how we receive the book in verse, in verse 2. There is a, a divine author, there's a trustworthy source, and then there's the, a trusted servant, verse 2, who testified to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all he, he, he saw. The divine author is God, the trusted source is, is the angel, is, and then the tested servant is, is John. John was actually on the Isle of Patmos as he gave this book. And what's interesting in these, these first three verses is, is there's a progression in the reliability of, of this message that, that's to, to give us confidence in, the, in, what's, in what's, what, what's taking place. It's, it's from God the Father given to Jesus Christ, to His servants, for the things that must soon take place. It's, it's for us, and it was made known to us by His servant, John, who's a, a proven faithful witness. How do we know He's a proven faithful witness? Where's He at when He's writing this? He's on revelation because of the testimony of the Lord. He's willing to be punished to go to jail rather than deny, deny Christ. And, and it's God that gave the message. Um, have you ever listened to an audio book read by the author? Think of Revelation as an audio book read by, read by Jesus Christ. The book is a complete autobiography, finished. And there's a promised benefit from those who study it in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed, pay attention to that, heed the things which, which are written in it. And look at how it ends in verse 3. For the time is near. There's a, there's a blessing promise for those who even hear the book of Revelation. I think I've shared this with you before. God always finds a way to get His glory. His message is never, is never snuffed out or silenced. If you go to a liberal church, I mean an apostate liberal church, a, a church that, that, it's a Christian church that, that, in history that, that doesn't preach the gospel, if you go to a wedding there or a funeral or sometimes even the service itself, you, you will probably not find the gospel preached from behind the pulpit. But in their liturgies and in the things, in their, in their hymnals, they'll still read Scripture and they'll still sing the gospel. There's a promised benefit of even hearing the book of, of Revelation. It's read and it's, it's heard and theirs are blessed, but, but it's also something to be heeded. You, 
it's hearing and heeding that is promised blessing. Remember, Revelation is, a, is an unveiling of what is really going on in the world, and the, the church is part of that and, and what, God's, what, what God's going to do. Doesn't it encourage you, knowing that, that we, we've, we've already won, Jesus has already won ahead of time, and we're just waiting on the victory lap? That encourages me. Doesn't it encourage you to know that, that no power on earth, no, no dictator, no army, no political leader can ever thwart the eternal plans of God? That, that encourages me. Doesn't it encourage you that the, the church victorious one day will be the church at rest? It's a blessing. And Revelation is a message to you as Christ's bride to look up to your Redeemer who lives and the one who is coming again. The, the meek Lamb of God is going to come as the, the mighty Lion of, of, of Judah. But you need to be faithful because the time is, the time is near. God's Word is not just for our edification, it's also for our observation. And the closer the, the end gets, the more important it is to, to obey it. Well, that's the intro. But what, is the, what does the book reveal? We're, we're, we're now on the runway. We've taxied out. There's the hearing, the promised benefit, the hearing in the, of the Word, and the heeding of the writing. And this is an overview of the book. There's an introduction. And then there's the things that are in verses, in chapter 1, verse 3. This is, would be the, the introduction, the vision that John sees of Jesus Christ. Then the letters to the seven churches. You're probably very familiar with those. That's usually what preachers preach from the book of Revelation. They stay away from chapters 11, 12, and 13 and do the seven letters. Then there's the things that shall take place after. That's chapter 4 through chapter 22. That includes the, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And then the, the, the battle and all the other things. What's got, what is yet to take place. And then there's the all things new. And that's when it gets really, really good in chapter 21 through 22. And then there's a, an epilogue at the, very, at the very end, chapter 22. Chapter 22. After this introduction in chapter 1, the book starts to take off, and there's a greeting to the seven churches in verses 4 through 8. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are at the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us both a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. This is a... This is addressed to the, the seven churches that are there, the ones that, that, are, that, are, that are existing at that, at that time. In verses 9 through 20, the rest of, of chapter 1, John gets a vision of the, of the Son of Man. Look, look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker of the, of the tribulation and of kingdom... And perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a, in a book, in a scroll, what you see and send it to the seven churches. So it's addressed to the seven churches, and they're listed. Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice, to see the voice, the vision of him speaking to me, and as I turned, I saw, and then he describes the vision of the Son of Man. John identifies the, the sender of the letter. It's Christ himself, the receiver of the letter. It's the seven churches. It's, he greets them with grace and peace, and it's from the, from the Trinity. 
the message in the in the letters is not just for these seven churches. It's for us today because this is part of the inspired word of of God. The the early church, those seven churches, were to hear a specific message to their assembly, and they're to consider what Christ was saying to him. But but you know. As you go through those seven churches, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just that one church. It's all churches, including Timberlake. And so John sees this vision of the exalted Son, and it causes him to fall on his face like a, like a dead man. Look, if you would, at verse 12. John sees the vision. He sees the voice. He turns to see the voice that was speaking with him. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Can you imagine that? Clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. And when it when it has been... As when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters deafening. And in his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You think you're going to argue with God? You're going to present your case to God? You're going to say, here are my good works. Let me weigh it out in the scale when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to speak. John sees him in a vision. He sees him in John in physical flesh. He's in the spirit. He sees a vision. And, and even imagining this, even seeing this in his mind, it causes him overwhelming fear and overcoming worship. And then the outflow of that is his service. He actually does exactly what he's commanded to do. He writes. He falls at his feet. Falls like dead, he falls at his feet. That's the worship. He rises and he writes. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. There's the service part. The things which are, the things which shall take place after these. Here's your outline. It's up on the screen. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now he's going to give the instruction. These are seven specific letters that Jesus Christ writes to his church. Can you imagine? You can. But I, we, I know we think about this. Can you imagine if you got a letter that was addressed to Timberlake Baptist Church from Jesus himself? Here's seven little letters to seven churches that are from the Lord. Well, you can't imagine because that's what the whole Bible is. It's a letter. It's his revelation written to us. And in verse or chapter two, chapter three, all the way up through three twenty two, there's the things that are. There's seven letters written. There's Ephesus, the loveless church, about losing their first love. They they were doctrinally sound and yet they they'd lost the, the love that, that they had. There's Smyrna, the persecuted church. There's Pergamum, the compromising church. There's Thyatira, the corrupt church. There's Sardis, the dead church in chapter, beginning of chapter 3. There's Philadelphia, the faithful church. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. There's the spewing church, Laodicea, the lukewarm church that was good for nothing. Chapter 3, verses 14 through, through 22. And he wraps up the things that are with that last letter, the lukewarm church. Look at chapter 4. 
because now is when it gets really, really good. John sees a vision. He sees a vision of Christ. He falls at his feet like a, like a dead man. He, God has to place his hand on him and say, it's okay, rise up and, and do what I've commanded you to do. John does that. He writes the seven letters. After the seven letters, John sees another amazing vision. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, and it said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And now we're into a new section. And this new section is, is breathtaking. John first sees seven scenes into the, the very throne room of God. There's an open door here in verse 1. Look at verse 2, he sees a throne, and the king who sits on the throne, verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. He doesn't just see a vision of Christ, he, he, sees, he sees the throne of God, and, and it's king, the one sitting on the, the throne. In verse 3, and he who, who was sitting was like Jasper stone and Sardis in appearance, He's, he, he, it was like a... It was like a rainbow around the throne, like an, like an, like an emerald in, a, in appearance. And he's, trying to, he's using symbolic language to try to describe what, what he saw. When I was in high school, one of, the, one of the assignments that they gave us in English class or somewhere was to descri- describe to someone else something. You had to write a little a paragraph or a little paper, describe to someone else uh, in words, something that they'd never seen before. I mean, they don't even have any concept of that. Can you imagine what it would be like to, to describe to someone who was born blind, to describe to them what color looked like? And it's almost like John here. He's trying to describe to us what it would be like to see into the very throne room of God. Have you ever seen in the throne room of God? If you answer yes, see me after the service. I, I want to... I want to pray for you. <laughs> John has seen into the very throne room of God. And, and, and in the throne room, besides the throne and the king, there's, there's a, there are 24 choir members. Verse 4, And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed with white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And he sees lyricless music in verse 5. And out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. That's the music of heaven, at least here. And there were seven lamps, fire burning before the throne, which is the seven spirits of of God. He sees the the spirit of the churches there in verses 5 and and 6. He sees four worship leaders. Look at verse 6 at the end of it. And in the center, around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. First creature like a lion, the second like a calf, the next like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around within day and night. They do not cease to say, here are the worship leaders, they're leading a chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, which John is seeing, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before him. This is going on in heaven constantly. And here's the heavenly chorus. Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created constantly, with the thunders and the peals and the lightnings being the, the backdrop. And John sees all the accessories around the throne room. He sees the one sitting upon the throne, and then he... He sees what he's come to see, the vision of Christ and his right to take creation's deed. Notice in verse 11, Worthy are you, 
O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now notice what he identifies that God has done next. You created all things. You know why you can tell anybody on the planet, whether they're in Saudi Arabia or whether they're in Sissonville, West Virginia, that they're accountable to God, and if they don't repent, they're going to be judged? Because there is a creator, and all of mankind is God's creation. And the creation is accountable to the creator. He's created, and because he's created, he has the right to tell us what to do, to tell us how to live. He has the right to hold us accountable. And so he's setting up here, he created all things, and because of your will, they exist, and we're created. And so here is the, here is the creator, and creation's title deed is getting ready to be handed from the one who's on the throne to the one who purchased that right, that title deed. And that is the the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with, with seven seals. There's a scroll. And I saw an angel, strong angel, proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? There's a sealed scroll. There's a strong angel summons for someone who is worthy to come and take the scroll from the one, the right hand of him who sat on the throne. In verse 4, or verse 3 I should say, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or a look upon it. The scroll is in the right hand of the outstretched arm of God. And the scroll is very important. It has seven seals. You you, you sealed something that was important. This one sealed seven times. The scroll is rolled. It would be rolled and then folded and would be sealed and would be folded again and then sealed and then folded again and sealed and folded again. And so as you would break one seal, it would unfurl, and you'd break another seal, and it would unfurl, and you'd break another seal, and it would, it would unfurl. And God takes up the scroll declaring it's time. The angel requests that a person come forward and present his credentials so the transfer can take place, so the document can be opened, so it can be, can be read. And what's going to be read is the rest of, of Revelation. And verse 3 says the universe is, is silent. The threefold statement, in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, is just a common expression for, for the created universe, all of it. None in heaven. No angels or saints. That would include Moses and the prophets. Adam doesn't step forward. Noah doesn't step forward. Enoch, who walked with God and didn't die, is silent. Not even Abraham, the father of faith, speaks. They're all in heaven right now when this is being written. None on the earth, he says. No one's still living, not any of the apostles, not John himself, no king, no man, no woman, no boy or girl, and no one under the earth. No one who's died, no one in Hades, no one in hell, no demon or even Satan himself, nothing. It's silence. And then probably second to John the Baptist's declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Verse 5 is probably one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Isn't it yours? And I began to weep, verse 4, greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look on it. And the elder, one of the elders said to me, Weep not. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has overcome and is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. And this lamb, as if he'd been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of the one who sat upon the throne. Do you tell me Jesus Christ is not God? You tell me, Jehovah's Witness, that Jesus Christ is, is a created being or the Mormons. God 
the second person of the Trinity approaches the first person of the Trinity who's seated upon the throne, Almighty, the one who's being worshipped 24-7, no one can do that other than, other than God himself. And he came in verse 7 and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, those same four living creatures, those same 24 elders that were worshiping the Father on the throne, fall down before the Lamb. Blasphemy if Jesus is not deity, but Jesus is deity. Each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they began to sing a new song. What are they singing? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open it, to break its seals. You have creation's title deed, and you are worthy to open that and unleash what's getting ready to take place. For you were slain, that's why you're worthy, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It is a mass of people. And it is a mass of people that God knows. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. After the scroll is unfolded, unfurled, and all of the judgments come, they're going to reign in the kingdom, and then they're going to reign in the new heaven and the, and the new earth. In verse 11, And then I looked and heard a voice with many angels, of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them were myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and the sea, all, of, all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. Now, every created thing, every created thing in heaven that's saved people, right? Everything that's on the earth that could be saved and unsaved. Everything under the earth that's those who are dead would be unsaved. And every single one of them will bow the knee and declare Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Revelation declares that right here. And the four living creatures, verse 16, said, Amen, and the elders fell down and, and worshipped. And the next 11 chapters, what happens in the next 11 chapters is when Jesus unfurls the scroll. Chapter 6, the first six seals that increase with intensity, verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1, Then I saw the Lamb who broke one of the seven seals, Jesus the worthy one breaks the first seal and partially unfurls the scroll which declares what is going to happen in the future on the earth. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a, with a voice loud as thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse and him who sat on it. The first six seals that increase in intensity are revealed in chapter 6. The first is a is a rider who is given authority over the earth's kingdoms. I looked and, and behold a white horse in him who sat on it with a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. He's given authority over the kingdoms of the earth. He conquers the kingdoms. In the second seal, war comes on the earth. The second living creature in verse 3 says, Come, and a red horse went out and him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. There's war that's coming. And then the third, in verse 5, the third seal, Jesus breaks the third seal, and famine comes. A black horse, and him who sat on it with a pair of scales. A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and, and do not damage the oil and the wine. The, during this period of time, it's going to be really, really hard. You talk about inflation. We've never seen inflation like this is, is going to be. The fourth seal, Jesus breaks it. Verse 7, And when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come, and I looked, and there was a, literally an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades. This fourth seal brings death. 
And he has the authority to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts on the earth. And the fifth seal are the martyred souls under the altar crying, How long, O Lord, will you wait for your vengeance? There are people who are dying today. There are people who died today while we were at Timberlake Baptist Church listening to Mark 9. While we're sitting here in Revelation, there are people that are perishing for the testimony of Jesus Christ in the world today, right now. And their prayers are represented here under the throne. And they say, how long until your vengeance, you, you, they'll be glorified and those who perpetrated those things upon them, vengeance will, will come. And the sixth seal in verse 12 Jesus unfurls the sixth one, unleashes cataclysmic events that the world has never seen with earthquakes and natural disasters and the sky goes black just like Jesus foretold in Matthew 24. Verse 12, when I looked, he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and hair and the, the whole moon became like blood. And stars fell from the sky as a fig tree casting its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Have you ever been under an apple tree? You ever been under a chestnut tree? I had a bunch of chestnut trees that were along the creek bank, and those were the trees that my mother used to pick the switches from whenever she would take me to the woodshed. Have you ever been under one of those things? You don't want to walk under one because you've got burrs everywhere, but if you've ever been under one and those things fall, here's a picture like a fig tree, you know, palm fig being shaken. The fruit falls, it'll be like that, except it's going to be stars falling from the sky. It's going to be so bad, look at verse 16, that the people who are alive during that time say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to withstand that day? No one is able to withstand that day other than the ones that God preserves. And that's chapter 7. Israel is sealed. And there is an innumerable group of martyrs that are left unsealed. Revelation chapter 7. After this I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth. Saw an angel ascending from the rising of the sun. You see a great number sealed, verse 3, the sealed bondservants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. You think God still has a plan for Israel? You better believe He does. They're sealed on the earth and they'll be alive at the coming of Christ. They're preserved or they would perish in verse 9, there is a multitude from the great tribulation. There's going to be martyrs during the tribulation period. Verse 9, chapter 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can count, from every nation and all tribes and, and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, which were in their hands, and they cry aloud, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, and you have this same scene of, of worship. In verse 13, one of the elders says, Who is this? Those who are clothed in white robes. Who are they? Where do they come from? And I said, My Lord, you know. And he said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're martyrs. And God's going to wipe every tear away from their eye. In verse 17, and after six seals and this pause to show us God's sealing and the martyrs, the people that will be saved, there will be people saved during the tribulation period. There will be people preserved during the tribulation period. Israel. And now comes the seventh seal. And in the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets that are going, going to blow. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. The final hour of God's judgment approaches. 
awe fills heaven, fear fills the earth, and everyone is hushed. But what they see on the, the scroll, silence was in heaven for about a half an hour. There is no silence in heaven. I mean, think about this. 24 hours a day, the worship of him who sits upon the throne, and the, the crowns are falling, and the elders are falling in worship, and they're singing worth to the Lamb and, and to God, and for 30 minutes, worship stops because of what's about ready to take place. The deafening silence in heaven gives way to seven angels with trumpets in verse 2. There's mingled incense of the saints in verses 3 and 4. Then there is the, the lethal storm that's coming upon the earth in verse 5. Then the angel took the, the censer and filled it with fire. That's the like the... You ever seen in the Catholic Church, I call it like smoke on a rope, you know, they, they go through and they the censer filled with fire and of the altar and he hurls it to the earth. And it was following of peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of light and an earthquake and the and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now the, the, the trumpets were given to them and now it's placed to their lips. And the first sounded in verse 7. And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and the third of the earth was burned up. And all the green grass was burned up, and the third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass. And this continues with angel after angel blowing the trumpet, each announcing a new judgment that gets worse and worse. The first four trumpets are all directed at the earth's ecosystem. You can preserve the planet all you want to. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't take care of it because you are a steward. And whatever God's placed in your hand, you should be a good steward of it. But we can try all we want. It will not be preserved. In fact, God himself is going to cause it to melt with fervent heat. The first four trumpets are all directed at the earth's ecosystem. This divine destruction, this is God doing this. A third of the earth is burned up in verse 6 and 7. One-third of the earth is bloodied in verses 8 and 9. One-third of the earth is embittered. The waters in verses 10 and 11. One-third of the earth is blackened. Heavens, the heavens is struck in verses 12 and 13. In that day, God's going to decreate everything by His own hand. And following the judgment, He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth that will last forever. Verse 4 and the last two trumpets are, are not directed at the earth's ecosystem, but demonic activity that the, world, the world's never seen. Some people wonder why there's so much in the Gospels about demons. It's not that there were any more demons or there was any greater activity during the time that Jesus walked the earth. They, they just had to expose themselves. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't stay undercover. Prior to that and even today, there's still demonic activity. Demons are real. Satan is real. They're just able to be undercover, but they can't stay undercover when Jesus is, is there. But it's going to be nothing. Like here, if there has, actually is going to be an increase in demonic activity. But before that happens, there's a, there's a pause. Look at verse... 13, the last verse of chapter 8. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in, in the heavens, in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Why? Because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets and of the three angels that are about to, to sound. The remaining trumpets that are yet to come are worse than anything that's come up to this point. And they involve satanic activity. The fifth trumpet in chapter 9, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven. It's going to bring intense torment on the earth's unsaved population to the point that they'll, they'll wish they could die and death will be suspended. The sixth trumpet 
In verse 13 of chapter 9, and a third of the inhabitants will die, the ones that are left, and Satan himself will be the one who carries this out. There's a vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. There's a message to the seven churches, chapter 2 and 3. There's the throne room and the receipt of the title deed in chapters 4 and 5. There's the breaking of the seven seals in chapters 6 through 8. There's six of the seven trumpets in chapter 6 through through 8. And the seventh here, and now before God unleashes His full wrath in the bowls, He pauses again. Look at chapter 10. Here's the calm before the final storm. There's a mighty angel with a little scroll. In verses 1 and 2, there's a thunderous message and a solemn oath. In verses 3 through 7, there's a strange command given to John to eat the book. And then there's an urgent commission to preach. Look at how chapter 10 ends. It ends with a command. Verse 11. John says when he'd eaten the book, when he'd eaten the words, when he'd taken in what what God had revealed to him about the judgment that's coming, in verse 10 he said, When I'd eaten it, my stomach was was made bitter. It was sweet as honey to my taste, and it was made bitter. And that's exactly how believers should feel about what we're reading right now. It is sweet and it is bitter. It is sweet to our taste because it's the words of our God. And we have been preserved from all of this because of, because of the Lord. But it is bitter because we know what is going to be unleashed on the rest of mankind. And because of that, look at verse 11. And they said to me, that's John, you must prophesy again. You must tell the message again. To many peoples and nations and tongues and, 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 and kings, you must prophesy. You must warn many peoples about the bitter judgment coming because it is so terrible. And that's why you have to read Revelation and teach Revelation. In chapter 11, the final drama is set. John sees a future temple that will be rebuilt before the tribulation period as spoken of in Ezekiel. There are two witnesses that will proclaim God's message until the Antichrist takes place. There's the two witnesses. The witnesses are killed. They're going to proclaim God's message until the Antichrist takes his place for the second half of tribulation. We're halfway. And when he does, those witnesses are murdered and the world rejoices and the celebration is short-lived. Can you imagine the whole world against God and his message and against his witnesses and they die and the whole world is able to see it and you can clearly see how that could take place today with all of the TV and, you know, Internet you search something on Google and whatever you search is going to show up on your Facebook page five minutes later, isn't it? Everything's connected together. You can understand how they can all see these, these two that are, that are preaching judgment and woe, repent, or you're going to perish, and everybody's celebrating. And then as they're celebrating the dead bodies, they rise at God's command. The two heralds are resurrected before their very eyes and they're called up into heaven. And from this point forward, there is no more mercy. No more mercy. Look at verse 14 of Revelation 11. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe comes quickly, and now there's a seventh trumpet. Revelation 12, John sees this vision of a woman, a child, and the, and the dragon. The woman is Israel, the child is Jesus, the dragon is Satan. Vision of his kingly birth. And this war that Satan has always waged against God and against his people, this final conflict has happened in heaven. All these things are happening on the earth. John's seeing visions in the throne rooms where angels, Jesus is unfurling the scroll and angels are blowing trumpets. And then there's a war that's taking place in the, in the heavens. And the war is between Satan and God's angels. And the target of that war is 
is Israel and Christ and God's people. And that long war that Satan has waged since the Garden of Eden finds its climax here. And chapter 13, which is where we left off, shows us the details of what happens in the second half of the tribulation period. It reveals the rise of the Antichrist, who is who has governmental authority. There's the beast from the from the sea and the beast on the earth. The Antichrist is going to have governmental authority and he's going to have apostate church to help deceive people with with their words. There's a world system, there's an apostate religion, there's a blasphemous beast from the world structure in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, and there's an apostate beast of the religious system in verses 11 through 18. And the target of both are those believers who will be converted during the, the tribulation period that the Antichrist identifies by marking his followers, which is called the mark of the beast. It's not WWW, which I heard way back in many years ago in Red House when the Internet first came out. Remember a man standing in the pulpit saying that WWW in English equates to the... Hebrew letter that equals six. I have no idea where he got the the nonsense. And so that was 666. And so the internet was the mark of the beast. Beware of people that tell you those kind of things. (laughs) And during the tribulation, the world leader is going to rise, who's empowered by Satan, and the world's going to follow after him. And he's going to bring an unbelieving world together under one rule, blaspheme God, attack God's followers. And he's going to have the backing of a counterfeit religion who deceives the world and causes its people to worship the world leader. And that's where we left off. And look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. This is what is to come. And then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the loud thunder and the voice which I heard. They sang a new song, verse 3, before the throne. And now you have the worship again, the four living creatures and the elders. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, in verse 4. They have been purchased from among men, the firstfruits, to God and the Lamb. In verse 5, and no lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion in Israel with a bunch of His followers. And we'll look and see who those followers are. You can probably guess next time we come. And now we're back at Concourse D, or wherever it is in Lynchburg or Roanoke, and it's 713. So 13 chapters of, of Revelation. And now if you haven't been here, you're caught up. And if you didn't bring a Bible tonight, you're lost, and shame on you. You should always bring your Bible to church. And we will come to Revelation 14 next time. Once you bow your heads. I don't know your heart tonight, but if you're a believer, this book is to bless you and encourage you. It should be sweet, but it also should be bitter. So you might be here tonight and say it's sweet because I know Christ, but it's bitter because I know people that don't know Him yet. Why don't you just, in this moment, give God thanks for your salvation and also pray for somebody that might be on your heart that's lost. If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ and you know whether that's true or not, you know that in your heart, you have no assurance of your salvation. You have never repented and believed. You've never trusted in Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. There's nothing else that needs to be accomplished. Jesus has paid for all of your sin, and He offers it to anyone who will repent and believe and come to Him, just like we said this morning in humble faith. 
You say, I believe, help my unbelief. You don't have to rest in the strength of your faith. The strength is in Christ who shed His blood and paid for your sins, but you do have to come. And if you don't come, this is the future that awaits you. It's a horrible future. Why wait? Why not bow the knee to Jesus now? Why not look forward to His coming? Have all your sins washed away and rejoice when He comes. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for salvation full and free offered to anyone. Thank You, though, Father, for the promise that as it was offered to us and we've repented to believe that we are part of Your number. We are numbered amongst Your redeemed. And Your love is set upon us and You have sealed us. And we say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we praise Your name. Help us, Father, this week to share Jesus with someone. We ask it all in His name. Amen and amen.